Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the Lego Movie 2. We're also going to be looking at Netflix's Velvet Buzzsaw, a movie I'm very excited to talk about on this show. Not necessarily because it's good, but because I want to hear Andy's hot take. Before I get too far into it, we're back from hiatus. It's been a couple weeks. I went on vacation. I got engaged. That's very exciting. Uh, that's Thank Congrats. you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I didn't know if it was worth mentioning on the show, but I figured, you know, <laughs> the fans got to know. Yeah. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, some news with the Oscars. They still really haven't found a host, and they've just announced some unconventional ideas for how to speed things up. But before we get to all that, we need to talk about news. And before we get to news, we have correspondence, Andy. I don't believe we it. We do. <laughs> yes. Where did this come from? Okay, so this was on our in, from our Instagram uh, where we last discussed Split and Glass. And uh, a user, Italian Peter Pan, says Split was better. No sequel was needed. And when I asked uh, for, for him to kind of explain those thoughts, he says, Honestly, I think what didn't work for me was having the antagonist from the previous movie become the protagonist in this movie. Otherwise, otherwise known as the Horde, I guess, is becoming the... Uh, and I hadn't really thought about it, but that, but that's that's a good point. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really arrive at that conclusion. I didn't find any of them to be well. I guess who uh, we can in glass, of course, is, is the bad guy in the last film, and now he's the good guy in this one. But he he's kind of the good guy, I guess. I, I don't know. I don't want to get too far into it. I know we're not we're not a spoiler show. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, thank you, Italian Peter Pan, for yeah. running into the show. Thanks, peeps. Uh, beauty is in the eye, I guess. Bef uh, our first story, Bloomhouse is reviving the Universal Monster Universe, starting with Leigh Wannell's The Invisible Man. I'm really excited to talk about this. We had a lot of stories coming back from hiatus, and, and we were looking at what was worth talking about, and we both agreed this has got to be it. This one's, this one's fantastic. Andy, what's, what's exciting about this? Okay, so just a brief recap. Uh, the the Dark Universe was this attempt to create a monster movie franchise. Um, you know, it was going to have the classic monster villains, uh, Frankenstein, Werewolf, Dracula, the Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein. And uh, there was this really kind of famous promotional picture that was taken that had all the stars, Johnny Depp, um, Tom Cruise, and, you know... Javier had, Bardem, Russell yeah, Crowe. Yeah. They hadn't made any of these movies yet, um, but every attempt at starting this universe has been a huge failure. They've attempted four times now with The Mummy uh, last year front with Tom Cruise being the latest failure. So they're, they're, it looks like they're going to ditch the, the big 10-film franchise idea and just kind of make smaller films and go back to those characters, and they're probably going to lose... They are going to lose the star power. Mm -hmm. um, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I think this this could work on a much smaller level, like they're trying to do it. And so I'm interested to see where it goes. Yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack here. First, I, I like that Universal's handing the keys over to Bloomhouse. And I know that sounds absurd, like Universal has a storied history, but frankly, uh, the mummy sucked, and Bloomhouse makes horror all year round. So I think there's definitely some potential here. And their stuff isn't exactly like deep, but it's fun. And it's enjoyable. Like so, for what it's worth, like I think they can turn out something worthy of the uh, the dark universe um, no nomenclature. I guess. I, I. What do you think about that? I I think it's a, a good direction. Again, the idea of the dark universe seems really cool, um, or this horror verse. But I'm not sure that these classic monsters are the way to kind of make it work. Um, but if it does. 
if they are going to go that way, it I think it will work, like I said, on a much smaller scale and focus on kind of individual, more like an anthology-type film set. Yeah, they had an interesting approach. Rather than going with movies like Dracula, The Wolfman, The Mummy, they were going to go with movies like The Creature from the Black Lagoon and The Bride of Frankenstein uh, before they got into the big hits. And that's an interesting angle. Like, don't go with what's necessarily hot and popular. Like, go for something a little bit kind of off to the side. I don't know if that's the best approach. I, I think uh, getting rid of Johnny Depp is uh, maybe for the best. That guy's got some weird press around him lately, and and yeah. I, I, who knows how much of that is valid, but you don't want that stopping down your movie. One thing I do like is uh, Leigh Whannell um, doing the directing. He directed Upgrade. He was a co-creator of the Saw and Insidious franchises, a very good friend of, um, what's his name? Uh, the guy that directed Saw and Fast and Furious. and Justin Lin? Justin, uh, maybe. Uh, just did Aquaman. James Wan. James Wan, yes. That's what it is. Uh, they actually co-wrote Saw together. If anybody doesn't know him, Leigh Whannell is Adam in the uh, first Saw film. He's the guy in the room, ne- chained across the room from uh, Carrie so that's kind of neat that's that guy and uh yeah I- i'm excited to see what he does with this I-, I think he's a cool guy i think he's a smart director i want to see what he does next so there you go the next story we have the batman to fly in summer 2021 the batman the next batman film ben affleck passes the torch to the next generation of bruce wayne uh andy what's funny about this headline so we we talked about this right before the show started um this idea of passing the t- the torch um Ben Affleck never really had the torch. He was a, a side character. Like, essentially, he's collectively done one Batman movie um, because he was in, what was it, Justice League and... Batman v Superman. Right, and then... I guess he, technically he, Suicide Squad? Yeah, he, he was briefly in Suicide Squad. So he was in three films total, but really, like, one and a half. Yeah. So it, it's not exactly a long... It's not like Christian Bale's Batman, anything like that, so... It's funny to use the term "pass the torch," and it's more likely that he's just trying to get away from this sinking ship. Yeah, I said before the show, like he's not passing the torch; he's dropping it and running away. Like if there was a torch, and you made the point there isn't because he was never really the star. But if there was one, the only reason he's trying to get away from it is because it lit him on fire, and he's got to get out of there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he never uh, had a standalone movie, so uh, yeah, and and it was an interesting uh, take on Batman, one that doesn't really fit. A lot of the comics, it was an amalgamation of several versions of him. This older, bigger Batman. It looks like they're going to focus on a younger Batman from here. I guess that's cool. Like, it'll probably inject some youth into the franchise. But at the same time, like, what's the plan there? If Aquaman and Wonder Woman are still canon, you're just going to change it and hope nobody notices? Like, I guess that wouldn't be the worst offense of, of the DCEU. But uh, it just seems real clumsy. You know? I think it's going to be, well, it's going to be a one-off, so I guess they're just going to kind of separate it from the rest of the universe so it doesn't kind of show back up. I don't know. It's starting to get really messy, though, yeah. know, for DC. And I'm not I'm not real sure what story they're going to kind of focus on because already, we've already done Batman Begins, which is um, based on, on the year one uh, story arc. So uh, It's a shame they can't get him to stick around for one more and do like a Batman Beyond arc and have Terry McGinnis be... Batman, like maybe that's a way to go. I know it seems clumsy. Well, it's not Bruce Wayne, but like I don't know, uh, it's modern. Like why not, right? Or or maybe get yeah. that Flashpoint movie going and retcon some of this some of this bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I've said this before. DC just really needs to do something different. Like we've had so many traditional Batman and Superman stories. It's really time to branch out, and that's where something like Flashpoint could be a real like breath of life into this whole franchise. But we'll see, I guess. 
We will see. Uh, the last story we have before we get into our first film, Paramount pulls the plug on David Fincher's World War Z sequel. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. David Fincher and Brad Pitt's little prep project in World War Z 2 is not happening. What a bummer. Uh, Andy, I, I know I said I'd kind of take the reins on this, but just before I get into it, any hot takes? Um, I know that the first World War Z, I think, was pretty successful and made a decent amount of money and was just a different kind of, of zombie movie. So, and, and I know that the sequel was very much anticipated. So this is pretty surprising to see that it's been cut. I There's a great line here in this article out of the playlist, and this comes from the first World War Z. Brad Pitt's character tells a handful of survivors in World War Z at one point, quote, movement is life. If you keep moving, you'll survive. You stop, zombies will get you. It's a, it's a commentary towards momentum, and it really fits this bill because World War Z, you know, it wasn't awesome, but a lot of people saw it, and a lot of people wanted to see what came next, and Brad Pitt was in it, and that was good. It's just been too long. It was 2013 that came out. It's been six years. Like, who's really stoked for World War Z 2? You know, if anything, they'd be better off trying to start something new and fresh with Fincher and maybe Brad Pitt than try to keep coming back to this well. But I don't know if everybody felt that way because it seems like some people were a little upset about this and Paramount did it in the night very quietly, called up David Fincher, said, hey, it's done, we're not doing it anymore. And there's some reasons why, and I'll get into that briefly, but... Um, Man, what, a, what an interesting turn of events for a film uh, helmed by David Fincher, a, a great director in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I It's not the first time Fincher's been cut off at the knees. Uh, when he made Sony's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, that was supposed to be a trilogy. That never happened, just because the last one didn't make enough money. And World War Z did pretty good, and it looks like they weren't asking for too big of a budget here. Uh, in fact, less of a budget than the original probably going to be a little bit more intimate um i i'm bummed because i love fincher and and i want to see more from him and i i was getting intrigued like where is he going to go with this what's what's the mighty david fincher going to do with world war z maybe maybe this is where he's finally slipping maybe he's finally this is as far as he goes personally i'm excited to see whatever he's doing outside of this because whatever he does he'll probably come back with a vengeance i hope anyway and he'll be better for it not having his name tied to some stupid sequel that's six years after the fact right but I guess we'll see. Same for Brad Pitt, let's be honest. So uh, that covers our news. We need to get into the first film of the evening, uh, of the show, really. Uh, the movie is The Lego Movie Part 2. The second part, I think. Once, everything was awesome. Now, everything is bleak. Hey, Lucy. I brought you coffee. So, The Lego Movie Part 2. Uh, interesting premise, directly follows the first film, it's a few years after the fact, uh, not to get too spoilery into what the first movie was, but essentially we're picking back up with Emmett and Lucy, uh, the two titular characters from the original, uh, it is a Mad Maxian apocalyptic world that the everything is awesome Lego city that the Legos previously inhabited has become. It's it's not great. It's it's the desert and it's awful and it turns out everything is in fact not awesome. What a bummer. Uh, Emmett and Lucy ha are trying to make things work, but ultimately things uh, between the two of them aren't going so great because Lucy wants to embrace the chaos of a, a dystopian universe and Emmett's like, I just kind of want to settle down and have a house because he's sweet Chris Pratt and that's his whole thing. Uh, 
an alien force comes along to upend all of this and 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 attack the Legos and and kidnap a couple of our favorite characters and it's up to Emmett to save them from chaos and and the Lego world from destruction. Along the way, of course, there is a heartfelt uh, um, metaphor about play that Lego is big on, of course. Andy, what did you think of the Lego Movie Part Two? Uh, so I really enjoyed it. Now, coming off the success of the first film, uh, it, it's hard to it's hard to kind of compare them. The first film, everyone thought was going to be total trash and was just a cheap cash grab. wasn't going to be any good. Like it was basically being compared to the Emoji Movie before it ever came out. And it, then it was really surprising when it came out. It was actually really good. Had really good writing. Was funny. Had good characters. All that. So you kind of miss out on that surprise element. But um, overall, like I said, I really enjoyed it. it. It has a lot of humor. It's got a lot of good jokes, jokes for kids, uh, jokes for adults. Um, uh, the action and the animation still blows my mind. Like some of it just looks so cool. And some of like the, the, when they quickly build stuff and, you know, throw together this shield or this hammer or this, you know, whatever. Those scenes uh, to me are still really impressive. It, I did get bogged down a little bit. The second act tended to kind of drag and at one point there's like three different storylines going on and I found it to be a little bit confusing as an adult, which made me think that kids would might be confused as well. Um, but like I said, overall, I really enjoyed it. I liked a lot about this movie. I, I think we should dig into exactly what you just said. You, you, can't, you can't close like the Pandora's box that was the original film. Not that it's chaotic and it's a mess, but I mean, it, it really did feel like lightning in a bottle. Like the first Lego movie came out of nowhere and was really good. I remember walking out of the theater like, I can't believe how much I enjoyed that movie. You know, it made me want to go home and play with Legos because it works on so many different levels. And we should talk about that when in comparison to this film. But first, before we compare it to what it was, let's talk about what this movie is. Uh, what did you think of kind of our overarching plot? There's some new characters. There's this kind of alien race involved and a, a titular queen on the other side there's kind of a soldier very captain phasma-esque sort of reminded me of anyway uh um and they they kind of interact with emmett uh, there, there's this rex danger man character i forget i, I can't even danger remember. vest danger vest character uh he is also voiced by chris pratt and kind of plays a um a good foil for his character i guess this guy with shaggy hair and stubble and and it wants to be like him um what did you think of our plot and and our new characters um, I, I really liked uh, kind of the expansion of, of this universe. So the, they introduce, you know, the Sistar system, which is, of course, uh, the main character's uh, sister who has her own toys and plays a certain way. And, you know, it, in the world of Legos, they're, they're at initially, at least, the like, kind of the enemy, the, an, the antagonist. Um, and they, they use the Duplo blocks, which are a little bit different from, from the... I think they're like... Baby Legos, essentially. <laughs> yeah, they led up to at the end of the first film. It's kind of a clever, clever continuation right. of that. Um, is so yeah, we get we get some clever characters. Uh, Queen, whatever, Wanabi, uh, voiced by Tiffany Haddish, is yes. uh, is a lot of fun, uh, and also kind of creepy because she shapeshifts all all the time. In a, in a very clever uh, animation, which we should get to, or the, the, we'll talk about the animation in a minute. Right, right, exactly. It and again it. It hits on some kind of more mature themes, and that's what helps give it give it a little bit more heft and heart, and uh, a little bit more emotional kind of uh, grounding in it. I think it was tough to embrace a lot of the new characters, and and this is mentioned 
in the film at a number of points. There's a couple of characters that are questionably evil, uh, openly questioned by other characters that we already know in the film. Other characters that they're like, hey, are you legit or not? Like, the characters in the movie are are skeptical of the new characters. And that kind of helps us get into them a little bit because we can connect to our uh, the characters we know, Emmett and Lucy and, and, and Spaceman, voiced by Charlie Day. Uh, we, we can get along with Unikitty. We can get along with them by keeping the other characters in arm's length and ultimately uh, coming to get along with most of them. I, I, think, I think that worked. I, I, let's talk about... The animation, I think. Uh, let's let's get there. Lego Movie, the first one, like incredible stuff. There's been a few Lego movies since. Any hot takes? A- anything in there that you thought was really really stunning, or or I don't know, because I have some thoughts, but I don't want to I don't want to spoil your. Well, like I said, they they introduced the uh, the Duplo blocks, and so that's kind of a whole different look and and feel, uh, I guess. Uh, there's a lot of. There's a lot of mu- there's a lot of music just like in the first film, a uh, number of good musical numbers, and those I, those scenes I felt had some really pretty incredible uh, animation as well. Like they turn into music videos uh, essentially. I did feel like it was a little heavy-handed with the music. It felt like there were more tracks than there were before, and I don't know if I just happened to notice that. And I should return to that in a second. Animation. I'll get back to music. Uh, I liked a lot of the animation. It did feel like they tried to stretch the medium more than they had by using. Um, not only Duplo blocks, but like hand-drawn animation. There were a lot of like little uh, interjections where somebody would say something like, okay, here's the plan. And it would cut to hand-drawn instead of Lego. Or or there at one point there was a uh, like an intermission segment uh, that was hand-drawn. And like, uh, that was neat. And like, I appreciate it, but it does pull me a little out of the world of the film. Just like, just like how the original Lego film uh, cuts to reality at one point. Like it really takes you out of the experience. Right. And even though it's used a comedic effect pretty well for what it's worth, ultimately, like every time it happened, I, it was just kind of, it's jarring and it felt odd. Like I, I like that the first movie felt so rooted in the world of the Legos. Like this movie didn't quite get there. The music, uh, I, 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 I want to talk about that. It did feel like there were more music tracks. Yeah. Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who wrote this movie, said they, they actually based a lot of this off of the way the public perceived everything is awesome from the Lego movie because everybody liked that, that song. Yeah. And the whole point of the song when it came out was that things are not actually awesome. Society's brainwashed in a very like Orwellian <laughs> capacity and like everybody's singing the same song and like, yeah, it's, it's like tongue in cheek, but the world actually really liked it. So they, they kind of went, turn that, turn that, you know, bar to 11 and they said, okay, well now it's going to be, Everything is not awesome. That's the whole pitch. That we live mm-hmm. in a dystopian world and aliens are coming down. And what are we going to do? Um, and I guess I appreciate that, but it did feel a little heavy-handed with some of the music. It's a little self-reflexive. The, 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 the kind of title track from this is, this song is going to get stuck inside your head. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of works, to be fair. Like, I, I, it is, I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, well, I can definitely hum it, kind of. So, I, you know, for what it's worth. Um, what did you think about that? Uh, yeah, I, I agree that it was it was very much uh, in your face, like like you said, the songs that get stuck inside your head, uh, which was a very kind of generic sounding EDM song, but definitely something that I think uh, could and would get so- stuck inside people's heads. Uh, like I said, I, I like some of the other. Uh, there's a great sequence where uh, Queen wa- Queen whatever I, Wanabi is. Um, uh, telling telling everyone about how not evil she is, and that's that was a really clever song. I I thought, and um, 
Yeah, I enjoyed the soundtrack. Not quite as memorable as the first one, I don't think, but uh, uh, still really good and enjoyable. Yeah, Tiffany Haddish does not... <laughs> it's going to sound bad. Tiffany Haddish just does not have the greatest set of pipes. And like, I don't know if they <laughs> specifically directed her. Like, hey, don't like sing it. Just kind of talk your way through it a little bit. But like, it, it just sounds like Tiffany Haddish kind of talk singing her way through a song. And like, maybe, maybe that was by direction because they were like, well, we want it to sound like you. I don't know. But it is a good song for what it's worth. I, it, it, very well written. And, and I think the writing in this movie does a lot well. Um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller returned to write the film. They did not direct. The movie was directed by, I just had this guy's name up. Uh, Max, Mike Mitchell. Mike Mitchell was the director of this movie. He also directed Trolls last year. He directed the SpongeBob movie, Sponge Out of Water, Out on the Chipmunks 4, Shrek 3, uh, Sky High, and um, Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo in 1999. That's an interesting choice. What's interesting about this, what stands out about this to me is they went with somebody safe. Like, they went with the guy who did Trolls, which was just huge for DreamWorks. And they were like, well, you just did this. You should do the Lego movie, too. Like, totally. And that kind of bums me out. Because, like, the whole reason the first Lego movie worked is because you went with Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who were not safe bets by any means. And still aren't. I mean, they, they did the solo movie and got pulled off that. Like, those guys are bombastic and experimental and different. And, like, that made the Lego movie work really well. And... I think maybe it's their writing, maybe it's his directing, but ultimately I, I think not having them really have a stake in the creative process um, hurt this movie. I, I think it, 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 it gets a little clumsy towards the end and the plot ultimately I, I didn't feel like had a satisfying resolution because it just felt confusing to me and I'm an adult. So like if it's confusing to me, <laughs> yeah. to kids, well, it's really going to be a mess. That's what I mean as well. There were multiple storylines happening and they were each kind of complex. So yeah. I got a little lost. Which I didn't, uh, like, go ahead. Oh, wh- one thing I wanted to talk about is uh, there's a number of references uh, to other properties, uh, the ones that k- kids will recognize, and a lot that they won't. And my favorite one is that there is an homage to 2001 uh, Space Odyssey um, that parallels the kind of wormhole uh, trip um, <laughs> from that movie. And I just, I saw that, and I <laughs> it, just, it blew my mind that they would put in a <laughs> reference like that into a kid's movie that only seasoned adults of uh bold cinema would recognize sure no there's definitely i mean it's chock full of not only just lego references but also visual references to time periods and pop culture um there's a lot of that in here um, which is really engaging it reminds me of like you know the original the original aladdin which oh my god i just realized we didn't talk about aladdin in the news how, how did we not do that <laughs> We didn't talk about nothing the blue to genie. say. There's we'll get back to, to that. Yeah, that, that'll come back around. So you know, if you if you got if you made it this far and you're wondering already to talk about that, stay tuned. Um, one more thing I want to talk about before we move on. I I didn't I, something I, I don't think this movie did well. I didn't like the way this movie hopped between reality and the Lego world. I, I thought it did it too much and too frequently. I think I, I get kind of the reason they did it because that was like the big reveal. At the end of the the, first one, right? You don't know what the special is, and this red, odd-shaped thing that clearly isn't a Lego on Emmett's back in the first film is really weird. And then at the end, when you find out, spoilers, I guess, it's a super glue cap to the father, who plays Lord Business, who wants to glue Lego worlds down and lock them down instead of them being creative and free. Like, it's just such a clever turn and so relatable, because once once you understand it, like, it totally makes sense, and the plot comes together... And you get it. This movie, pretty quick in, it cuts from the Lego world to reality. And it doesn't do it often, but it does it enough that, like, you just, 
everything you're doing, like you said, the Sistar system at the beginning of this review is clearly Sister. Like everything feels like you can't you can't enjoy it because you have to see it through this lens of, hey, this is a fictional world set in reality. And that's the way it's gonna be. And like the first Lego movie didn't quite feel that way. You know, it felt imaginative and fun and like anything was possible. Uh, this movie, I didn't quite get that. It felt limited because they, they couldn't escape that feeling. Right. In, in the first one, every, like the, the conflict and the problems and all the characters are all take place primarily in the Lego world. Yeah. And we kind of lose that in the second film. And again, I, I, you can't put lightning back in the bottle. I get it. Like you, you did it once. You can't do that big reveal again. But like, honestly, I would have been fine with this movie being locked to the Lego world until the last 15 minutes, just like the last movie. I, I would have been perfectly okay with that. Like, yeah. I, I enjoyed getting lost in that experience, you know? And when you remind us, oh, hey, just remember, this is all make-believe. Like, it's un, it's valued for less to me. Um, but that's, I, I don't know, a hot take. Ultimately, I I, I, I didn't mind the movie. Uh, I really didn't. Uh, Andy, I, any, anything before recommendations? I'm ready. Would you recommend The Lego Movie Part 2? Yeah, I think I would. If if you, especially if you've seen the first one, and if you're a big fan of that, uh, it's very much enjoyable. There's lots of laughs. There's good writing. The animation still looks really impressive. Um, it does have some issues story wise, and it doesn't quite feel as fresh as the first one. Um, but overall, I, I really enjoyed it. I think I'd recommend it as well. I I don't think it's as good as the first movie. That could be because. I'm jaded by the surprise and experience of that. It could be because it's really not as good. I think the Lego Movie 2 has a lot of li those little clever moments in the writing when, when the character turns to the camera and says something that's completely out of, out of context, you know, that we get, but people in the world wouldn't, or, or some kind of funny reference and something somebody builds or a character they talk to in passing in the Lego world. Like, all of that works really well. Ultimately, the plot feels a little clumsy, but the animation and the look of it and the feel of it and the music... I think it all works on a level that, that I, I'd be remiss not to recommend this movie. So, yeah, Lego Movie Part 2. Pretty good, I think, ultimately. There you go. Yeah. Our next segment, we should get right into this. Uh, we talked about the Oscars last show we did, and there's been some developments since. Uh, Andy, you want to you wanna dig into this, or should I keep going? This is the death of cinema. So, yes, we got some new Oscar news, and uh, we had heard rumors that they were going to announce some of the winners during the commercial breaks, which isn't, is a bad idea to begin with. And then they finally revealed what exactly those uh, would be, and um, cinematography, editing, and I can't remember the other two. <laughs> oh, God, do you, do you even have to, right? Uh, uh, let me see. Exactly. Cinematography, <laughs> editing. Oh, God, I just had this pulled up. Live action short and makeup and hairstyling. So they've done this in order to make the show go faster. And, you know, and they're trying to say, no, this isn't a second class citizen of awards. It's just to make this. But I can't help feeling it that way. And for me, I definitely, I think cinematography and editing are two of the most important, um, you know, filmmaking things out outside of the you know the top five awards yeah um this is something that like it's such a statement about how the academy views film and it's not a good statement it's very bad um for anybody who 
is listening to the show and made it this far into the program and doesn't know what cinematography and editing are, just a brief review. Uh, editing is, of course, how the film is cut together, how your music interacts with your world, how, how your characters talk, its pacing. Anytime, I heard it said best, anytime you're watching a horror film and you feel suspense or you feel scared or you're watching a comedy film and you laugh and you think something is funny or you're watching a romantic film and you feel heartwarmed or, or maybe tears come to your eyes, that's the editing. That's the reason that happens is because the puzzle pieces are put together in an order and in a way that makes you truly feel something. Cinematography is the art of photography and, and, and rolling film in film. I mean, it's, it's so much. It's, it's, it's the lighting and it's the, the film grain, it's the lenses and the staging and the way they shoot things. It's the way a scene comes together. Ultimately, that is your cinematography. Um, both of these are tremendous categories to move to commercials. <laughs> Yes, um, and a lot of people had yes. hot takes about this. I got a couple. I got a couple directors uh, who, who've got had some hot tweets. But before I get into it, uh, Andy, any any initial thoughts? Um, yeah, when, whenever I read what they were, I was like, man, those are <laughs> pretty much the most important things. And it, I mean, you could have put one of the sound. I mean, sound is incredibly important, but the, you have sound editing and sound mixing. You could have thrown one of those in the in the commercial breaks. Yeah. Um, the, the hot takes I have are uh, Guillermo del Toro, of course, uh, monster movie director, said on Twitter, I like this a lot, he said, If I may, I would not presume to suggest what categories to cut during the Oscars show, but cinematography and editing are at the very heart of our craft. They are not inherited from a theatrical tradition or a literary tradition. They are cinema itself. Alfonso Coran said on Twitter, In the history of cinema, masterpieces have existed without sound, without color, without a story, without actors, and without music. Now, no one single film has ever existed without cinematography and without editing. He also capitalized cinema, the history of cinema, and also cinema and cinematography, just to point out that cinematography is derivative of what cinema is. Emmanuel Luzbecki, a cinematographer for Blade Runner 2049, um, had a hot take on Instagram. I can't pull it up on my desktop, but uh, a lot of other editors weighed in on this and filmmakers. It's not great, man. It's really not great. And and I I, I pulled up a list of Oscars, Oscar uh categories that I that we can go over that may be may have been better to relegate to commercial breaks because cinematography and editing are just not not awesome right I it, go ahead yeah it, it like I said it's really it's really disappointing and you know when I think of back to last year's winner I think Roger Deakins finally won for Blade Runner 2049 um cinematography so I would have hated for him to have got finally gotten that award and then have to do it on the commercial break like had he won this year or something um something like that it's just a shame yeah no you're totally right uh I said Emmanuel Luzbecki Lubezki was the cinematographer of Blade Runner 2049 Roger Deakins he won you're totally right um I forget what he did I'll get around to it uh, looking at the categories for things they could probably move to uh, to commercial break instead of cinematography and editing. If you don't mind, Andy, I've, I've, I've got a wiki open. You mind if I just roll over this real fast? Go ahead. I'd move sound mixing because who cares? Uh, I, I'd consider something like adapted screenplay, which is a stretch, I know. But again, compared to cinematography and editing, I'm going with what I think is important. Sound editing, maybe. I hate to say production design, but you might want to consider it. I'd say probably original score over original song, because if you're yeah. going to go with one of those, I'd say probably go with original song. People seem to like it more. 
Yeah, uh, a lot of these awards have two versions. You know, you have adapted screen, screenplay and original screenplay. You have sound mixing and sound editing. So you have these awards that are kind of similar. You could throw one in the commercial break, I think. They're moving makeup and hairstyling already. So I would have said that, but they're already moving it. And to be fair, normally in any in any real world where a movie like The Favorite has incredible makeup and hairstyling, I'd say no, of course you can't move that. But remember, just a couple years ago, they gave makeup and hairstyling to Suicide Squad, an Academy Award-winning film. So obviously oh they're not taking that category that seriously. I don't want to take it that seriously either. Live-action short film is being moved as well, but I would have said that. Hot take, the hottest of hot takes maybe on this show so far. I would consider moving best foreign language film, which is messed up because that's that's a big category and a big deal, but these are American awards. Like if you gotta move cinematography, editing, or that, <laughs> I'd move that. And that's just a handful. I mean, you mentioned documentary short subject. Yeah, you could probably move that. I would think that yeah. would be okay. I think you move the the do kind of duplicate technical awards. You know, you could do adapt like you said, adapted screenplays, uh, sound mixing, documentary short. Um. Yeah, th- there's un- you know, and un- unfortunately, there are less popular awards, and we, ne- we people know this. Like, I never see the documentary short subject. I just, I just don't. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> so I, I, it's right. I think about uh, moving best costume design. Honestly, if you're really digging deep, I'd consider moving best supporting actor and actress, which is huge. But again, like. <laughs> If you did that, then it would make it feel like you you weren't creating a second-class citizen. Right, and that's that's ultimately what this feels like. I would so much rather the Oscars take the opportunity every year when people are sitting there watching at home to teach and educate people about cinema and why this stuff is important. Like, where's the where's the hot film essays that run during a commercial break that explains, hey, real quick, here's what cinematography is, here's a few examples, here's why it's important. Let's get into the category, you know? Why not, like, educate people into great examples of brilliant cinematography and film or some previous winners? Like, why not use that opportunity? Instead, they relegate that to the speech directly in front of, or announcing, I should say, the the nominees. They're like, here's what cinematography is. And everybody's tuned out by then anyway. Like, it's a matter of production value. Like, you should be using this opportunity to teach the world about film and what it is, not just buckling to their demands and saying, well, nobody seems to watch when we're talking about stupid cinematography and editing, so let's nix those and get to best picture and best original actor and actress quicker. You know, that sucks. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think a larger issue here is the fact that, you know, audiences aren't really watching TV as much, and so putting, putting on a three-, four-hour show... Filled with commercials is, you know, difficult. I would be more likely to watch it if I didn't have to sit through commercials. That's actually, that's actually what makes the, the show so long. Yeah, taking commercial breaks. And one other thing, while I'm on this, uh, the Board of Governors in the Academy meets each year uh, to do a handful of things, of course, uh, but one of the things they do is they consider new categories. And Wikipedia has four categories here that I would argue, if you want to spice up your show and make it more interesting and more engaging for the average user, I would rather you add these and move something else to commercial break or maybe consider swapping these out entirely. These are best casting, best general cast in a film. That seems like a layup. That was rejected in 99. They said, nope, that's stupid. Nobody's going to watch that. Best popular film. That was actually proposed in 2018. I think we probably talked about it on this show. They pushed that back to 2020 because people didn't seem to like that idea. So that's postponed for now, but we might see that later. 
Best Stunt Coordination, which has been pitched every year from 91 to 2012, and never once has that gotten picked up, and people like their explosions. And Best Title Design, which is kind of, honestly, uh, it, I, I like that one. I know other people probably wouldn't, but I think titles are neat, so... I, I don't know, man. St- the stunt coordination thing, I think, would be uh, a huge thing, and I think that would make it real. Because, you know, part of what they're trying to do is appeal to, you know, the the, the masses, be it more popular. And if, if you did, you know, best stunt, well, I mean, the films that have great stunts are usually, like, action films or blockbusters. So then you, would, you could pull in those audiences. Yeah. I, um, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> that's 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 where I come out on this, son. I am disappointed, and I, I don't I don't have any much more to say about it. I guess I, I think there's a lot the Oscars can do to spice it up, and I think there's a lot the Oscars can do to teach the world about how great film is. And instead, they're just rolling with what everybody says. They're flipping over on filmmakers who have devoted their entire lives to this medium, uh, and they're just going with what people want. It's a bummer. Um, maybe Criterion will start doing their own awards or something. The real, the real Oscars. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's my take on the Oscars. Anything else before we move on to our final film? I'm ready to go. Please uh, take it away, Andy. Velvet Buzzsaw. I'm hoping you find something to explain what's happening. Which one's better, one or two? Better, or worse, no different. No different. So this is the new indie slash horror film, uh, Netflix film, uh, directed by Dan Gilroy, also written by Dan Gilroy. Uh, it stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Renee Russo, uh, Tony Collette, Natalia Dyer, John Malkovich. Great cast. And uh, wh- what the story is, is that, and I'm not sure how they came up with that title, but um, <laughs> this, is, this movie takes place in the art world in L.A., and at the uh, the very first um, kind of opening scene, we meet this wide cast of characters from artists to art dealers to art students trying to break into the industry. And they're all re- really pretty shallow, vain people. I mean, they're, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal pay- plays this art critic who uh, who is like a big deal. And, you know, when he writes a, a good review on your, your piece, it's going to sell for millions of dollars. And if he doesn't, well, then it's just going to sit there. Um so it, it's it's very you have these very pretentious people and people that are in the industry and then trying to be around the industry. Um, so that's kind of the setup. And then we meet um, Josephina, played by Zawe Ashton, um, who is one of these these kind of lowly art students uh, trying to break in uh, to the industry. And uh, one day uh, she discovers her upstairs neighbor has fallen and and died, and uh, she discovers that he was in fact a prolific artist and has thousands of paintings in his um his apartment and so uh she you know uses her contacts in the art world to begin selling his art but then something very strange starts to happen where uh people begin turning up dead people that buy his art and so then we we get a little bit of this uh horror thing horror supernatural thing going amidst this kind of hustle and bustle of uh the art world uh so zach what did you think man i <laughs> I went into this movie very optimistic. Um, honestly, before we get too far into it, there's a lot I liked about this movie. There really is. Um, but ultimately, it is not better than the sum of its parts. It's got a lot of issues. It's genuinely surprising to see coming from Dan Gilroy, the director of writer and director of Nightcrawler, uh, to produce this because it's right, not yeah. as good. 
and it's got issues, and we should dig into it. But what did you think? Uh, overall, I enjoyed it. Um, it it's like you said, it's got um, it's got a lot going for it. It has some some problems as well. But again, because it's on Netflix, which I already subscribed to, and I could watch it at home, it, you don't mind when it's not quite quite as uh, great, you know. Um, but it's funny. It's it's a dark comedy. There's lots of 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 dark moments. Um, there's a particularly fun recurring gag where, uh, Natalia D- Dyer, who plays a uh, Nancy Wheeler in stranger things, um, where she keeps finding the, these people that die, she finds their dead bodies, And she, she is like, it's always her. And it happens several times. And it's just like, it's this really dark thing. Cause that would be incredibly traumatizing, but she keeps finding the, the, the dead bodies. It's a recurring joke. So you get things like that. The horror stuff isn't, it's not quite as scary as it needs to be, and it comes off a little hokey and cheesy. Um, but the the I, I enjoy the premise, and you know I think it's attempting to say something about art and the art world, and just kind of like the emptiness or the vainness of it. Uh, but it, I feel like it never quite gets there. We do have really good performances. Jake Gyllenhaal is really great. He has a good Jake Gyllenhaal freakout moment. Yeah. Um. Uh, Rene Russo, which they they were the two leads in Nightcrawler um, as well, and uh, Zawe Ashton, who I hadn't uh, wasn't familiar with, uh, who plays Josephina, uh, Tony Collette is always always uh, dear, and John Malkovich. You know, it's weird. I I thought about a lot of movies when I was watching this, but one that kept coming to mind was uh, 2000's uh, American Psycho, starring Christian Bale. Uh, when I watched Nightcrawler, I thought about American Psycho, but in a different way. Because American Psycho, for being a, a very odd movie that not a lot of people saw, um, takes place in this cushy, avant-garde, metropolitan uh, luxury lifestyle that is Manhattan just at the turn of the century. And, and Christian Bale plays a man... Uh, Patrick Patrick Bateman, who has uh, everything in his life and, and a boatload of money, and lives in a huge penthouse. It's everything in it is white because it's it's the ultimate in luxury and class and fine living, and and the whole movie is presented in this. I, I know I'm I'm getting somewhere with this. I have a point. The whole movie is is presented in the same format and style. It is not clumsy. It is not uh, like slow. It is it is very like high art fine living uh it's shot very i don't i don't know it's it's kind of hard to describe but like it's, it's just got a mood to it and a tone and a feeling and nightcrawler in a lot of ways by dan gilroy done in 2014 five years ago same kind of thing like it's it's very patient and it's very thought out and it's very like nuanced and there's there's just it, there's a lot of something to it a lot of substance in this movie it didn't have that. Like it, and it felt like if any of these movies needed it, it's a movie about high art and living in the the utmost luxury of, of society and creativity and and what people think art can be. This didn't have that at all. Like ultimately, this felt like a a clumsy slasher movie uh, where where a, a handful of pretty much entirely useless characters are one by one uh iced and and that's the movie and like i i don't get what exactly i was supposed to feel when i watch velvet buzzsaw and maybe that speaks to the title like i i don't i don't know what i'm supposed to get out of it 
And in right. a way, th- that intrigues me, but ultimately is unsatisfying. Yeah, it reminded me of a great, great review that uh, Roger Ebert gave, uh, which I can't remember what movie uh, it was for. Oh, it was it was for The Master, actually, uh, where he described, like, reaching and then grabbing air. That, and that's kind of how this movie feels. It, it seems like it's going towards something, like it's trying to say something about, like, the art world or what it means to be an artist. Um, and then, But then it just never really gets there. Mm. And again, the the horror stuff, like I said before, it, it well, how did how did you feel about that? The well, horror elements. Yeah, I, I was gonna say we should we should dig into the substance of the film. Sorry, I was very excited to drop my hot take, uh, and I love American Psycho, so I wanted to get that in before everybody tuned out. But uh, I I liked, man, I liked a lot about this movie. I liked I liked the way it's put together. I like the world these characters inhabit, and frankly, I like the characters. Um, the execution is what was poor. Like the horror. Not that bad, really not. Um, not not edited particularly clean, and and there wasn't any real sense of tension. I felt like it tried to juggle too many characters at once, and too many different plot lines. That whenever it comes down to one person about to get, you know, canned by some cool art or something, like they don't have, they they can't take five minutes to drag out them alone in a museum at night, you know, and nobody's around. Like they can't, they don't have time to do that. It's like, hey, we got to move. Uh, we're 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 hitting. How long is this movie? An hour fifty-three, which somehow felt long for what it's worth. Um, mm-hmm. it, it never really had that like that sense of tension and like drawn out like fear. Um, I never really got that. It was just like, okay, well, I guess this person's probably gonna croak. Who's next? You know? Oh, okay, I guess they didn't. Neat. You know? Like I, I never really, I don't know. I never really got immersed in the world of the film. How'd you feel? Well, along those lines, uh, particularly with with the horror mythos, it 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 is interesting. But it kind of never sets up any rules. Uh, it reminds me of things like um, uh, The Ring, where you know you watch. If you watch this video in seven days, you'll die. Uh, and then in that film, like there's lots of rules about well about just the 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 mythology of it all. And in this film, we start to get that, but then it, it just kind of abandons it, and just kind of anyone who has a painting by this guy just kind of dies. And there's not really uh, well you can avoid it by this or, you know, he's go- only going after these certain types of people. It, it's really kind of ambiguous what the rules are and are not. Yeah. And, and it's a bummer. Like I, I think part of what made Nightcrawler work so well, and I know I shouldn't keep comparing this as a previous film, but I mean, it really is pardon the pun like night and day, like Nightcrawler to this is like, you'd think they're made by two completely different people. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say with the same director and the same starring actor, Jake Gyllenhaal, we, we all kind of expected a similar tone and a feel and that you don't really get that. Um, but for what it's worth, this movie has so many good cast members. Jake Gyllenhaal, Renee Rousseau, Zowie Ashton's actually really good. And I haven't seen her since I saw an episode of Sherlock, like season one or two, I think she's in. Uh, Tony Collette is in this following Hereditary and she's great in it by the way she's really good she's almost unrecognizable compared to her character in that Natalia Dyer from uh, Stranger Things David Diggs from Hamilton is in this John Malkovich (laughs) is in this movie and all of these characters play central roles there's a lot of them which I think is to this movie's detriment I don't think that helps the movie Um, but they're all good for what it's worth like I liked them but I just didn't feel like I got to spend enough time with them specifically Jake Gyllenhaal the guy's I mean he's got maybe 25 minutes of screen time tops in a nearly two hour film I was trying to think of who the lead is because it seems like it's Jake Gyllenhaal but then Josefina uh, is also kind of the lead it just they're both 
fighting for a screen time. I, I felt, and maybe again, this is one of these. Th- one of the things about this movie that intrigues me, that may may lead me to revisit at some point. Maybe, maybe that's part of the the whole setup, right? Like maybe maybe all of these artists are trying to vie for attention in a world where there simply isn't enough. Maybe it's a meta commentary. Maybe that's the whole point. <laughs> Maybe. Like, but that's reaching. It really is. And like I like to entertain things like that, but ultimately, like, I I it doesn't if that's what they were going for, it didn't get there. You know? It's not obvious enough. So I don't know. It just it just felt clumsy and, and it was tough to really enjoy. I liked a lot of the art in it, even though a lot of that I'm sure was phoned in. Um you know, a lot of the art that's on display, um, kinda neat. And a lot of it's really cool. And, and a lot of the art they use for, what's his name? Um, Deese. Our, our, our Deese, yeah. Vet, Vetral Deese or whatever his name is. Yeah. Uh, that stuff's actually really compelling and really neat to look at. It's not. It's by no means masterpieces, of course. Um, but it's certainly engaging. And, and I liked I, I liked looking at that. What did you think of the, I don't know, the look of this movie? I mean, it had a lot of cool stuff. It had a lot of, you know kind of stereotypical contemporary art things that like installations of people that are weird or people don't understand or there's a great part where um you know uh, john malkovich's new art dealer is you know touring his studio and he keeps mistaking everything for art yeah. he's like oh this is this piece is great and he's like that, that's a pile of trash bags yeah you know there like there's a lot of that kind of stuff which reminds me i don't really know what john malkovich's role is in this movie like his his storyline just goes nowhere the the artist. I mean, it's kind of the same with Natalia Dyer, right? Like, she's yeah, she's so, there so, for so a somewhere. reason, but I don't know why. Like, I don't know what the movie was trying to say. Mm-hmm. I saw uh, before I watched this movie. I was cruising YouTube a couple days before I saw it, and uh, I, I saw somebody, you know, one of those cheesy clickbait videos, Velvet Buzzsaw, ending explained. And like, let's be clear: the ending of this movie is by no means cryptic. If you yeah have a pulse and you watch it, I think it's pretty clear cut but to think of characters like john malkovich's and natalia dyer's i almost wonder if there's any kind of something there like oh hey here's what they were supposed to be because i do feel like this movie was trying to say something bigger i can't i can't look at a movie like nightcrawler and roman j esquire which uh was the other movie uh dan gilroy did before this i can't look at both of those and think well this guy had no idea what he was doing but i do have a theory as to why this is on netflix and maybe we should talk about that for a second what is why, what is that? Well, I think Netflix is an interesting platform for directors like Alfonso Cuarón and um, oh god, the Coen brothers. That's it. Both of them came out with uh, Roma and the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, respectively. Both of those were passion project films, yes. and, and and a little experimental. They were both movies that they were like, I don't know if this will really work in theaters. What if I do it on Netflix and see how it works? And in that vein, if that's what Dan Gilroy was doing with Velvet Buzzsoft, this was a, a passion project, a script he wrote that he liked but didn't think anybody would pick it up or didn't really know how to do it and thought, well, maybe I'll just see what I can do and kind of you know flex, flex my wings here and see if I can fly. Um, I can appreciate it because I like that Netflix is this odd catch-all for like, hey, I, you know, I did this cool movie. I want to try this thing. And maybe it won't work and maybe it will, but I, I, I like... I like the idea of Netflix as a platform for that, even if that means sometimes we're going to get movies that aren't that cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I think uh, you're exactly right because I think this film would struggle finding an audience, um, but it doesn't have to worry about that if it comes out on, on Netflix. 
Yeah. And I think ultimately that's uh, probably an argument for Netflix. I'll keep that in mind next time we're talking about whether or not Netflix is killing cinema. But um, yeah. I, man, hold on. My mic is turned the wrong way. Wow, that sounds a lot better. Okay. <laughs> Amateur. Amateur. Oh, man. Okay. Well, uh, I, I learned an awful lot right here at the end of the show. Um, I don't know, man. I, 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 I liked it. I didn't like it. I was all over the place. Are we ready for recommendations? <laughs> we, we are. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Velvet Buzzsaw? I think yes with some caveats. It There are a lot of things that work. The performances are really good. The kind of setting in kind of this high art in L.A., is interesting. The, the horror story and, and mythos backstory is interesting. Um, but then it, it definitely has its problems. It, it doesn't... It, the horror isn't scary enough. Uh, the Whatever the film is trying to say doesn't really get said. Um, but, I mean, for a nice afternoon movie, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I guess I'd put this... I want to relate it to, like, a, 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 a B Nick Cage flick. Because Gyllenhaal can get a little nuts. Obviously not Nick Cage nuts. But like, for what it's worth, if you like Nightcrawler and and you like movies like American Psycho that are a little different and kind of make you think, uh, and you like high art, and and you like Tony Collette, and you like Jake Gyllenhaal, give it a shot. It's it's on Netflix, for God's sake. Yeah, like, it's difficult. It's so difficult not to recommend a Netflix movie because it's so readily available. Um, It's just under two hours. Again, it feels a little long to me. Um... But it, it does a, it does a handful right, but it does a lot wrong. So ultimately, I'd say worth it. But don't I mean don't don't don't, I, don't stop the presses. Don't rush home yeah, to watch it. I just remembered this. Uh, so Jake Gyllenhaal is like incredibly ripped for this, and he has no reason to be. Like I don't know if he's training for another movie or if he's gonna be, like be the next Superman or Batman. But uh, Mysterio, like, right? That's the whole. Yeah, but still, Spider-Man. I mean, Mysterio wears a suit. It's he not does. like he's got, he, he, he's, you know. Yeah. It's just like, man, it's, you guy's been working out. There's, there's a scene in here uh, where, he's come, where he's coming out of the gym and he's on the phone. And I'm like, I swear to God, they only filmed this character coming out of the gym because Jake Gyllenhaal is so unnecessarily shredded for this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, like, I, I think, I think they, they got to filming and they were like, dude, you have the, the cleanest six pack for God's sake. Your character is supposed to be a lazy art critic in LA. Like, why would he and be he ripped? Like that Wolverine. doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah. It's like, it's like if his character had had like a freaking two foot tall mohawk or something like it's so out of place. Um, I appreciate what they're going for, but yeah, I don't see I don't see Morph Vander whatever his name is supposed to be Morph Vandewalt being like getting in the gym and jamming Godsmack and getting huge. You know, I don't I don't <laughs> see that guy getting swole. I'm gonna be honest. Uh, yeah. So that was a little weird. Uh, I ultimately would recommend it. I guess that's Velvet Buzzsaw. Shoot. Um, I guess that wraps our show. Man, I'm so bummed my mic was turned around. It sounds so much better listening to it now. Like, man, I got to edit this now. It's going to sound like trash. It'll be fine. All right. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, if you liked our hot take on Velvet Buzzsaw or Lego Movie, if you think uh, the Oscars should actually put cinematography and editing back in, uh, maybe just a big PR move. I don't know, man. Uh, If you like the news, let us know. Hit us up. Instagram, Twitter, uh, offscriptfilmreview.com. Drop us an email, mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Let us know what you think in the comments below, I guess, uh, if if we post this somewhere with the comments. Leave a rating and review on iTunes. Subscribe. All those things you should do but never do on all your podcasts that you listen to because you're lazy and you're not a good podcast listener. Come on. 
hope so. <laughs> It'll be fun. Um, next week. Next week. Sorry, it's been a while since we did this. I'm gonna be honest. I'm I'm running out of steam here. I, I gotta I gotta steal myself for next week. We're talking about Alita Battle Angel. Like you pointed out when I rolled my eyes, you said, "What better Valentine's release? <laughs> what better <laughs> than than an odd?" weirdly animated robo action anime thing we one of the stories we cut for this week uh just we'll probably talk about it next week uh this movie is on track to lose a lot of money and i can't wait to talk about why um we we called that from like a mile away and we'll see i I don't know if it's going to lose a lot of money just the speculation is not going to do great it is a 200 million dollar james cameron film and robert rodriguez film like if man if you had asked me in 1999 if you had said James Cameron and Robert Rodriguez are joining forces to make a $200 million action film, I'd have been like, hell yeah, yes. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. Sign me up. Yeah, I cannot wait, dude. And and this movie looks like something. Um, but we'll see. I, 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 I'm, I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I've been wanting to see it. So. I read a couple of those manga back in the day. No lie. Like, I, I, I know a little Alita. Like, I, sure, man. Who knows? Maybe it'll be awesome. I want to see, I want to see that uncanny valley. I want to see how lost I get in, like, looking at Alita's yeah. face the whole movie and, like, whether or not I'm convinced or it's completely unconvincing. Uh, I guess we'll have to see. It's $200 million worth of CGI. What's not to love? And anime eyes. It's perfect. We're also going to talk about Amazon Prime's Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Neither of us remember a whole lot about this movie. Going to be honest, I think we're going in pretty clean. And I think that's important because it's an Amazon yeah, it's, Prime thing. Yeah. It is uh, directed by Gus Van Sant and Ooh. stars uh, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Jonah Hill, and Rooney Mara. Um, I'll know it involves someone in a wheelchair trying to kind of go get across town or like escape or something. And that's, that's where the title comes from. It's don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Yeah, it also involves a uh, struggling actress uh, trying desperately to regain control of her career. That'd be Rooney Mara and uh, J- Jonah Hill in a movie where he lost some weight again, I guess. Uh, and he's some hipster, I think. So well, it'll be good stuff. <laughs> but hey, Gus Van Sant, Last Days, what's not to love, right? That movie, that guy makes movies. Um mm-hmm. If you enjoyed the show, man, I already did the plugs. I guess we're done, right? That's we're done. <laughs> episode 51 in the can. Man, this really this really unraveled right at the end here. Uh, from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening. <laughs>